find common ground, if we aren't willing to listen and change our mind as a, as a positive, as actually something to be celebrated as a growth opportunity rather than a, a mistake that you got, you know, pushed into all of these kinds of things. That's the, I always see the opportunity in it, but those are, those are my biggest, those are my biggest concerns. Mm-hmm. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast, Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest. Who will introduce yourself, Laurel. Please go ahead. Thank you, Maurice. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. My name is Laurel Patterson. I lead the SDG integration portfolio at UNDP. Um, that's a portfolio that's relatively new. It's an interdisciplinary team, sits in the middle of UNDP's global policy network, and we aspire to connect people, ideas, and different approaches, um, which fundamentally leverage systems approaches to development challenges. Um, I've worked at UNDP for a long time in in different places, and this role is a, a real pleasure to actually connect a lot of those different experiences in countries, in UN reform, even um, in partnerships in different regions and so on. So that's uh, a little bit about me. And when you say relatively new, how how new is that? So this team was created in, in 2019, and it was actually okay. born out of the UN development system reform process, mm-hmm. uh, where UNDP was uh, requested to deepen its integrator function. Um, a function that it was already providing, but really recognizing that the way that challenges were colliding and cascading, uh, it required even more of that integration lens and it was felt UNDP could provide it. So we put a small team together, really focused on the drivers of what those approaches could be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just in time for COVID, more or less. Um, Laura, what I would like to ask you, because I was looking at your bio and you know, before you started with UNDP, you worked at the university. So you come from the academic world. Um, so my question is, why did you shift, you know, from university to the UN? Yeah, so so I actually went from the UN to the university and then and then oh, back to the okay. UN. Yeah, when I finished grad school, Canada at the time, I'm Canadian, I was studying in the UK, it had a program that placed you in a in an entry level sort of a, a position. I had the opportunity to go to Zimbabwe and work in Southern Africa, mainly on Angola, actually. It was all covered from the office in Zimbabwe. And then I, I came back to Canada. And at that time, I don't know if it would work the same way today, but I sent an email to the former foreign minister of Canada who was running a a think tank out of University of British Columbia. Mm. And I said, I love this work. Um, I want to come for free. And anyway, went back, drove across Canada and spent a couple of years uh, doing that work on the West Coast before I came back into the UN system. Wow. Wow. I 
I, I don't know if that still would work nowadays. I mean, you know, you, you would drop, you would not send an email or, or something. You would drop some uh, message <laughs> in a, somebody's DMs in Instagram. Probably yeah, that's what you need to do. Um, hey, and and um, so why did you decide to study what you studied? I mean, how did that come about? For me, when I went to, I don't think I knew exactly. In, in my undergraduate, I started in, in economics and, and didn't find that that was the best fit for me. I moved over to political science and then I did my graduate studies in international relations. I did sort of a double major in international security and international law. And what I was focused on in my thesis, and it remains a question for me in the work today, is what what um, what are the factors and conditions? What are the personal as well as the structural incentives to bring people to a negotiating table? And of course, Angola at the time had been mired in a civil war for many, many years. And there'd been so many previous attempts driven by all kinds of different constellation of actors. At that time, um, targeted economic sanctions were being introduced from the Security Council for one of the first times. And I was curious, does that uh, does that get you closer? Does it bring us closer? What compels people? If I have my position and perspective, we were talking about polarization a couple of minutes ago. What compels anybody to shift their position, particularly when so much is at stake? So that's always been a question for me. And that's what took me um, into those first uh, out of uh, my studies and, and into the U.N. system. Hey, Laurel, I mean, the reason that I started this um, uh, podcast is that, you know, more than 10 years ago or so, I started to do a 100-mile walk to raise awareness about hunger, poverty, and injustice. And um, so I walk 100 miles in a week, so 15 to 20 miles per day. And then I'm very often accompanied by somebody, you know, we would talk. But two years ago, because of COVID, it was not possible. So I was walking alone. So I thought, okay, this is this is not how I envisioned it. So that's why I started to this podcast to virtually walk with, with people. And then it got out of hand, you know, and two years later, I'm still doing it. But it's it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, you know, my question to you is, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, um, you know, why would you walk, you know, for which cause? Huh. If if I was going to walk, that's a that's a great but a but a but a tricky question. But to to me, what it would, would land on uh, is on is on this notion of the twenty thirty agenda of leaving no one behind, and genuinely meaning it. And so to to me, it, it is easy to say, but when you really think about what it would take, fundamentally. It's a it's a question of justice, I think, um, and it's a question of voice, and it's a question of agency and an ability to define and determine your own future. So, to me, those are those are always the the that that would that would be what would lead me onto the road. That leads me down a lot of roads as it is, but that'd be another reason to walk. What gets you out of bed, you know? To, Except to for me, an alarm clock, maybe in a in a you you told me you have kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, especially with the time change. That's definitely getting me out of bed now. No, to, to me, it's a, I think that I've had tremendous opportunities in my professional life and I've had an opportunity, but I've also taken it and sort of walked into a space of being able to very meaningfully connect my personal self and my professional self. And I think it's a false separation in any case. We're always ourselves. But I've tried what gets me out of bed is a challenge to myself to really try to more fully bring myself into my work, not to make it about me, but to provide the biggest contribution that I can, even if it may not be the most uh, fashionable, even if it may not be the most. But if I don't do that, um, one of the books that I was reading over COVID was this book called 4,000 Weeks, A Mortal's Guide to Time Management. But with 4,000 weeks, I don't want to look back and say, God, I wish I had have just said what I felt or been courageous in my choice that I believe but because of my life experiences, what I have witnessed, et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. So that opportunity and that challenge to myself is probably the thing that keeps me motivated. I I definitely resonate with, with that. You know, um, I'm a I'm a fan of a philosopher called uh, Ken Wilber. And, you know, he says every issue has at least four perspectives. I, we, it, it's so, you know, if you, yeah, you can't, you know, work on systems change without working on yourself and knowing who you are and then, you know, the community as well. Um, Talking about community, um, you know, during those walks where I'm accompanied by other uh, folks, we very often talk about religion and spirituality and it has to do something with walking. I think, you know, (laughs) I've asked myself often the question, for God's sake, why am I doing this? My knees are hurting and stuff. So you think, you know, you you think about about life and and spirituality, religion, and it's very often make a link with the younger generation that, you know, some of my guests are saying, um, you know, they are different. Well, I've used younger folks as guests as well, and they say, no, we are not different. We are the same, et cetera, et cetera. So my question to you is, what do you see happening among youth in your community around religion and spirituality? Is that different? Um, you know, the your generation? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say from from where I sit, from, from what I see, I, I do see a questioning of of power hierarchies um and systems and institutionalized systems that wield control over over people and a rejection of of that number one number two i also see a lot of young people finding beauty and inspiration and spiritual wisdom in nature and i take a lot of hope in that because this is where we have miracles unfolding within us and around us all the time. And so that I see as an opportunity, but also for a younger generation, I see it as a challenge to navigate all of the different devices that steal your attention and which rob you of your intention because your attention is lost. And so that that's the two things. So that's the hope of where I, I see is that is that recognition of 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 miracles all all around us and within us, and and needing to for younger people to very carefully manage 
and for all of us, frankly, but for those of us that didn't grow up with it in the same way, I think it, you have a different starting point to measure against versus others for whom this has always been uh, an important medium. Because my, my my fear there is that you just you can't you can't see all of the 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 beauty and the inspiration and just this tremendous wisdom that surrounds all of us. You've blocked it, and I believe that the universe is not going to find that for you. It's going to move around. We like water moves around these kinds of. So if you're not going to activate yourself, your own curiosity, if you're not going to tap into this potential, you miss it. That's what I believe. Uh, and so that's both the opportunity, but partly, I think, the concern for for uh, a younger generation. You know, so it's, it's it's interesting what you were saying in terms of of uh, lifting that up in you know getting closer to uh, to nature, you know, being more aware of that, um, being aware that we are interconnected as well, and that's something that I think happened to many of us, if not all, uh, were experiencing COVID, being at home, and more people were walking, and what I've said in in some of the previous episode that happened maybe for two weeks. And then after that, it became clear that the vaccine was available. And then we went, you know, we were thinking only about ourselves again. Um, anyway, so that's that's my worry. Um, my, my question mm-hmm. to you is, what do you worry about uh, at the moment? Yeah, I I would share a similar concern of a of a of the extremely fast return to status quo after such a profound and tremendous disruption. I think we have to ask ourselves questions about about that Um, because if we don't learn from that, it will prevent us from being able to navigate the challenges that are present today and, and ahead of us. So that I worry about, but I, I guess w- within that worry is I really worry about, and similar to this point I made earlier on, on being our lives being sort of adjudicated by these different digital mediums, I just worry about disconnection more than anything. And I, I worry about, and this is where me and you connected in the first place, I worry about a, a lost art of dialogue um, and being okay with disagreeing no problem in in fact encouraging spaces where that can be explored and debated and it's it's extremely it's so human it's so much about who we are and when we surround ourselves with devices that sort of filter out what we may not agree with or amplify things that will cause a a sort of like a knee-jerk reaction It, it it we've prevented ourselves from actually capitalizing on the opportunity that we have in 2022 to to do better to evolve to to learn more to reach to reach towards one another rather than separate from even me and you we're we're talking now we're having this conversation we're also we're we're doing this via zoom i mean so many people have gotten used to um these kinds of frameworks and i think that some of it because we haven't been able to be in person, it's it's too easy to switch off figuratively and mm-hmm. literally. It, when you don't like something, when it doesn't suit you, 
And I think that those are my, those are my, and, and of course, because of the rise of misinformation and all of these different ways that our perspectives on the world are manipulated, that this is my biggest fear. Not that we can't find the solutions, not that any of these challenges are impossible for us to navigate. They're not. But if we can't find each other, uh, if we can't find common ground, if we aren't willing to listen and change our mind as a, as a positive, as actually something to be celebrated as a growth opportunity rather than a, a mistake that you got, you know, pushed into all of these kinds of things. That's the, I always see the opportunity in it, but those are, those mm-hmm. are my biggest, those are my biggest concerns. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you still uh, see hope? And and if so, where? Yeah, I always, I always see hope because we're here. Um, and it's today, which it also always is. So we're always here and it's always today, right? It's always now. So the opportunity is always there um, for us across different different perspectives and, and different contexts and so on. And I don't think you can, I think the, the key for that is that you can't, um, you can't kind of minimize the context and how much the context and the collective shapes our experiences, what we see as possible, what we could be hopeful about. So for for me, I see it in different, I see hopefulness in in different places, but more than that for me, more than saying what's maybe one place or another that I I find things to be hopeful for is more, I try to challenge myself to be open to a diversity of ways that that's expressed, Right. There's so many different ways and also be cognizant of what prevents people, those structural barriers in people's way for them to really exercise what would be their highest potential. Um, And then how do we look very intentionally at those barriers, which, again, it requires a collective lift. But I find hope in 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 a lot of places. And I think we need to be as open as we can be to the way that that manifests in a language that we don't agree with in a sector that we don't think is valid, whatever it happens to be. But I also just think there needs to be an opening up of um, those spaces and activating that potential from where we didn't expect it. Let me, let me, um, continue asking a question in terms of opening up let's open up a lot a little bit more i you know music is is very important to me so i always ask a question about that so if if i ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who laurel is um which piece of music or song would it be and why that's a fun question so i i went to uh, a school for the arts mm-hmm. uh, oh. all through high school and i studied mm-hmm. music um, and one of the things that I really didn't fully appreciate until I started working more in the space of systems transformation, how much music activates uh, a systems way of thinking. Because when you're playing in a symphony or or in any kind of orchestra, any kind of collaboration, you're doing multiple things at once, and it 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 I just think it it gives you a perspective on where you sit, where others sit, what a collective sounds and feels like, where adjustments need to be made. 
all at the same time. So I'd never have a perfect way, and I've been searching in some of the literature to make a direct connection between musical collaborations and systems thinking. And I know that's not the question that you asked, but I think it's a really powerful, I think it's a really powerful way of describing what it feels like to not only think, but to act in systems. That's that. If I were to pick uh, an artist and a song, I would pick Nina Simone and I would pick her song, which is based on a poem that's not um, by her, um, but I can't remember the name of the poet, but it's I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Mm. And that is a powerful song. Uh, for me, I've gone back to it many times over my life, but for my my youngest who just turned three, uh, that's the song, which I'm not going to do now, by the way, Maurice, but that's the song I sing to him most most evenings. You you must have heard a previous episode that I did with, with uh, I think it was with Maya Asusena, and I, I got her to sing in an episode. So I, okay, I'm failing <laughs> here. Um, so, so uh, Laura, we, we, or I made a, a Spotify a playlist. So, you know, all the songs that are chosen by my guests, um, you can oh, listen good. to that. And it's, I, I, for me, it's really a, a go-to because I, you know, it reminds me of the people I've spoken with. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's from hard rock to classical music. So it's really, yeah, it's an eclectic, uh, this, but it's, it's really cool. So, um, okay. Nina Simone, um, that particular song we we did not have yet. So thanks for for uh, for sharing that. Let us let us go to you know you're responsible uh, you know for the SDGs in in your organization to keep an eye on that and um, so a question that I always ask about uh, to my guest is you know what do you want my listeners to know about the sustainable development goals so thanks yeah it's a great question so for me what i would encourage all of us all of your listeners is to go back to the 2030 preamble and the reason for that is because i think there is such a powerful collective statement um, about the world as we see it and the world as we wish it to be And my perspective is that the 17 goals are incredibly important. Um, So are the targets and indicators that help us understand them. But the most important thing for all to me is that collective ambition. The 2030 agenda is the world's first globally agreed systems agenda. We've never had this before. And it's made for a world like this. It's made for challenges like this. And I would encourage us, it's universal and it's interdependent. I would encourage us to not be reductive at at any point. And that's where I feel sometimes when you start looking at numbers of uh, goals and targets and Mm -hmm. so on, it's not as easy to hold this vision and ambition, which you have in the preamble. And I think sometimes we forget that we've got this beautiful negotiated, right? I mean, it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. powerful negotiated preamble uh, agreed by all member states. So I'm I'm going to push you a bit on that so so because you know my listener would say i don't have time to read that in preamble why didn't she explain it to me you know what the essence is so (laughs) here's what i think is important in in that preamble 
is that it not only reflects back where are we coming from, what are the important um, precedents and what are the important agreements that are in place around things like poverty eradication, ending hun- hunger, et cetera, et cetera. We knew a lot of those from the MDGs, but the SDGs open up a space for us to say, there's much more that shapes our human experience. And it's not only about human progress, it's about our stewardship of the planet. Right. And to me, all Mm -hmm. of that gets captured. Your audience might also argue, yeah, but those are are in the goals. And that's true. What to me is in the preamble is a powerful statement on human dignity, Mm -hmm. which needs to drive everything that we do. And I think that's so important not to get lost and not to simplify. And the second is it makes a commitment to future generations. It, in fact, says at the end of the preamble, we may be the last generation that can shape the future in a way that can protect it for our future generations. And that choice is in our hands. So I also think these are very powerful reminders. Development is about choices fundamentally. Um, And this to me is a really important one that places dignity and future, not only past perspectives or whatever, but future generations at the center of what we do today. Yeah, Laurel, and I, I know you're 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 working on this as well. Uh, there is a group of people right around the world that's growing and saying, you know, one of the reasons that we are not doing well, you know, towards uh, these SDGs, towards this world that you know we would like to see, and well, you know, basically if we don't do it, our world our world is going down down the drain. Has to do with you know we did not put a focus on the abilities and skills and capacity that you need as individual and as community to really work on you know these system changes um the inner development goals uh they came up with five five inner development goals um so yeah i i know that you have heard about the inner development goals you have done sessions on it um same question um, you know what do you want my listeners to know about these inner development goals I think what's important, making the connection to what you say about the SDGs and and if they're off track and and, and what it would take to put them on track, I think the Mm -hmm. collective challenge to us, and that's again why I go back to the preamble, I don't think that the vision or the ambition needs an adjustment. I think it's extremely powerful and I think it it reflects Mm -hmm. the world as we're seeing it today. But I think how we get there is what has to change. It's the how that has to be fundamentally mm-hmm. reimagined out of incremental step-by-step. Step. It won't get us there fast enough in that case, but also out of an idea or a mindset that would suggest that the technical actions themselves will solve things. What that does is it separates us from us mm-hmm. <laughs> fundamentally. And so if if we want to transform systems, which is what we are saying that we want to achieve through the 2030 agenda, we have to be willing to see ourselves as actors in those systems. We have to see ourselves as part of those systems, those systems that propel change and those systems which, in fact, have left significant sections of the global population behind, actively so. Those are realities we have to confront. They relate to our societies. They relate to our social contracts. They relate to our own beliefs and values. So for me, it's not so much to say 
how do we get goal 10 back on track? Mm. It's to say what more of ourselves is required. And this is where some of the work that uh, we have done also with the Presencing Institute, I have found particularly powerful to connect not only our our intellect, but mm. but to connect a kind of you know, uh, uh, our our intellect with our with our hearts, with the wisdom of our of our hearts, from our experiences, from our compassion and our empathy towards each other. And when you don't do that, it's obvious what happens, right? We watched what happened in COVID with the with the with the introduction of vaccines. Some countries got them, and some countries didn't. And there was no global solidarity. We didn't see it. We saw just the opposite. We saw every country. And those things are, I think, they're very strong indicators to other parts of the world. It's all fine to say solidarity on a sunny day. It's different when the stakes are higher and the stakes are collective. So to me, unless you're activating your knowledge, your intention, and your actions from a place of your heart, not only from your intellect, you're not going to make the choices that you need to to make and we saw exactly how that happened. So I think the inner development goals are a useful way of of trying to sort of connect that with the SDGs themselves and suggest that some of these inner shifts are really critical to the outer shifts that we want to see. But I think it gets picked up in a lot of different ways. There's tremendous work in the climate field, in the inner green deal uh, out of out of the EU and other partners that is really looking for ways to intentionally connect mindsets with collectives and with action on very specific challenge areas and for me that's the only way forward there's no other place there's no other person there's you and there's now and that's where we have to start from and that's not something you're going to read in one of the goals but if we can't bring that together and create that trust and those collectives no, then I don't think we're going to get anywhere in here. In fact, we're seeing the backsliding, right? For the last two years, UNDP's Human Development Index has indicated a backsliding. Since the Human Development Index was created, this is the first time we've ever seen this. So we know what we're not doing. Um, And I don't think it's more bright ideas necessarily. I think it's a reconsideration of how and what we bring to the table and the courage to make choices that you know, may not be an immediate benefit for you, but they would in the longer run offer a greater benefit for a collective. I would like to uh, piggyback a bit on what you said in terms of, you know, maybe not everybody is is able to participate really. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of inequity. Um, so, I I would like to to hear from you what your thoughts are in terms of um and I know this is a difficult question that I'm going to ask but I'm going to ask it anyway um and that is about the NGO sector as a whole and how did they do according to you in terms of racial justice and um you know and I'm asking this also because my organization celebrated, I think, last year its 75th anniversary. So we looked at, we did a lot of reflection. One of the things that we looked at is how did we do, you know, around racial justice issues? And, and you know, we were established in 40, 46. How did we do during the 60s, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
but yeah, my question is from where you are sitting, what do you see and, and um, yeah, how did we do as NGO sector um, and what should we do better? Yeah, it's a tricky question because I just don't don't think I have a, an answer to to that. What what mm -hmm. I could say related to what you're asking is that mm -hmm. I I think that NGOs have played a critical and continue to play a critical role in advocating and bringing different voices and perspectives to the table. Um, you know, in many different fora and many different forms. Um, so I, I think that's hugely important. From where I sit, I think the rise of different social movements that we've seen recently, um, Black Lives Matter, among many others, these are critical drivers of the changes that, that we need to see. And many of those connect and amplify and are enabled by different civil society actors. Uh, and for me, this not only is the issue itself, but it's reimagining the way that we build collectives, the way that we govern collectives, where we put value, what matters to us. Um, so I think it has the, the potential really to be transformative and it, it connects, it connects people. It's a, it's a, it's a story and a belief and a vision that people find more compelling than the one that we have now. And I read an interesting, you know, quote from a, a marketing, <laughs> I don't know where it was. It was from some kind of a marketing guru, but their perspective was, you know, most people are motivated by fear of what they might lose. They're not motivated by an ambition of what they might achieve. So in anything that you're putting forward that you want to be compelling and connect with people, it's not only the vision that moves you, it's addressing those fears that would prevent them from seeing it in the first place. So, and I, I do think that a lot of the work that many civil society actors are picking up are helping not only to create and galvanize towards that vision, but to recognize what prevents in the first place um, from people being able to uh, to capitalize or to really to realize that. I'm going to connect you with the, the previous guest. Um, who from from Bangkok, Thailand. My question for the next guest would be, do you think you'd be happier if you could never be in pain? And that's a big uh, that's a big question. I mean, I guess the the point of sharing on your your podcast is obviously that I can only answer that from my own perspective and my own experiences. And from my side, the distinction that I would make is between pain and, and discomfort. And I think it is really important that we have more tolerance for discomfort. It's how we grow. It's how we learn. You don't know something makes you feel anxious. The stakes might be high, et cetera. And you move through it. You have the courage to move through discomfort. Pain is 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 difficult, right? And I think it requires a whole different type of reflection, understanding and navigation, particularly where there's trauma involved. You know, those are very real barriers to progress. But from my side, if I look at the experiences that I've gone through which are painful, deeply painful, right? And and cause trauma. Uh, for me in different ways, I wouldn't wish any of them away. 
I really wouldn't. I, I would have maybe wished that I could have recognized them a little sooner and addressed some things in a healthier way than I did. But but no, because the journey itself is so powerful. And I think when you work through discomfort, you know yourself and you build confidence in your potential. And this is what I think is really key. A close collaborator of mine is Otto Schormer, and he calls it action confidence. And I really believe in that. And you need to struggle. There's nothing really that comes of value without an effort, without a struggle, without some discomfort. But the more you do that, you activate your own ability to see and realize your highest potential. And without being able to do that, I don't see how we move. I don't see how we move at the speed or the scale that we need in the coming decade. So no, I guess that's a long way of saying I don't wish that I had never been in pain. But I would say that addressing pain is not something, and we're seeing the mental health issues that so many people face today. I just don't think we can underestimate that collective trauma. And it, it has to be given the time and attention that it deserves. Uh, yeah, let us continue with connecting. So I connect you with the next guest. Um, you know, do you have a question for my next guest? The question for your next guest for me, let's see. I think I would want the the question to be sort of a, a specific one. So as you come to the end of the podcast, my question would be, what are the one or two things that have come up just as a result of this podcast, the virtual walk, as you've put it, that you would immediately action within your span of possibility and potential that exists with you today? And that's the same thing I would put back to your listeners right now. And I put it back to myself as well too. With this opportunity, not with what you might know three years from now, not with what you might hope for if you studied a bit more, but just from the opportunity of listening and walking together, what would you commit to yourself? Because I think we also need to create those real, practical, beautiful, humble <laughs> commitments um, first and foremost to ourselves. So that's for your listeners, but that's also for your next uh, your next guest. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's it. Would like to, yeah, really thank you for for uh, taking the time and and sharing your wisdom with with being the listeners. I really uh, appreciate that, and I enjoyed it, and I'm sure the listeners did as well. So thanks a lot, and. Um, yeah, good luck with everything that you do. And um, yeah, thanks for who you are as well. So, Thank you, Maurice. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks for those that were listening in. Thank you for listening to Walk. Talk. Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.